0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 30th, 2015. This is episode 1683 of the Survival Podcast. And again, it's a Monday, so it's time for your feedback. This is where you send me emails to jack at com and put uh, anything you want with TSPC in the subject line. But, I mean, a good title or a good subject would be something like TSPC question for Jack, TSPC video for Jack, TSPC uh, article for Jack or post for Jack, something like that. That really brings it to my attention that it's something you're sending to me for a show like this. Remember, can't get it all on the air, but even a lot of stuff that I don't get on the air, I put out on Facebook and Twitter. And it also makes its way into the show because a lot of the information you guys give me, I don't cover stand-alone. I do read it. I read really, really fast, and I take information in really quick. So I will apply a lot of the information you give me to further analysis in the future, so all of it helps. I feel like one of the most blessed people in the world because I have an incredible research team in this audience. It's amazing how much data comes to me, well sorted, vetted, etc. But I do want to say something today beyond the normal, just because of the date, November 30th, 2015. What happens on November 30th, 2015? The last day of the month, the last day of November, The, the last day before it's December, the end of the year. TikTok, tock tock the clock ticks for us all. Are you working to further your individual liberty, your individual self-reliance, your individual self-sufficiency, your family self-reliance and self-sufficiency? If you are, you're moving forward. If you're doing nothing, you're moving backward. I want you to understand that there is a sliding scale when it comes to independence, liberty, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. That's what this show is based on, those four tenets. And there's a the reason I chose those as my pillars is there's a constant with them. You're either proactively expanding them, or the systems as a whole are eroding them from underneath you. There is no static on that scale. It's up to you. Just a little kick in the head, a kick in the butt, however you want it to be. Right now, to remind you, we're in the last month of 2015. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was excited and I. Enlisted in the Army in 1989. Wow. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities, there's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people they're trying to defend or themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest, level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over, the kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it, from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects, check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your 5-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have pigs finally fly, taxation with representation guaranteed. also have German-Dutch colonists in the Easter Bunny come to Pennsylvania, and I have a hard frost. I'm going to do something unusually. I'm going to read two because one I'm going to have a lot of comments on, but the last one has to do with a question we will eventually take for today's show. An unusually harsh winter marks this year, and into the next one for the history books. The ground has frozen solid, three feet deep in southwest England. With so many emerging scientists in England and France at this time, many are commenting on the weather and theorizing on the reasons for exceptional cold. This is the Little Ice Age. And while it has been an ongoing issue for well over a century, this stretch of time is going to be especially bad. Keep in mind that they still don't know what cold is. Many think it's a natural force separate from heat. Frankly, they don't even have a good theory on heat either. That won't come about until 1871. It's not that they're not thinking about it, but actually proving how it works is a different matter. That's 1683. I want to actually comment and read to you another one. Pigs fly fly taxation with representation, representation guaranteed. Notices have been sent out and representatives for the First Assembly of the Providence of New York are selected. New York is the last of the English colonies to create an assembly. Nevertheless, this is the first colony to establish a constitution, 1683, guys, which includes the right of the colonists to have representation prior to taxation. All foreigners are naturalized. And the New York Providence is split into 12 counties, 10 of which remain as New York counties in the modern day. Towns are considered subdivisions of a county rather than separate entities. Aside from setting up the basic structure of government, the assembly passes a law offering a bounty for wolf hides and cracks down on swine farmers and the problem of feral pigs destroying the crops and becoming a general nuisance. In over 200 years of laws regulating swine farmers and feral pigs, the government is still trying to solve the problem. This first law was reasonable. The farmer was required to keep his pigs on his own property with adequate fencing. If the pigs escaped, it was his responsibility to collect them or kill them. If the pig wandered into his neighbor's property, bang, the neighbor was allowed to shoot it. If the pigs were still loose after March of the following year, it became a public hunt. Successful hunters received one-third of the value of the pig, and a local constable receiving two-thirds, and the owner of the pig received zero. In modern day, the government has become an increasing problem, along with the pigs. Large commercial farmers have pressured government to shut down small farms based on the concern over pigs. The penalties are so devastating that many farmers have killed their pigs rather than take the risk. If a farmer has a bad history, then throw the book at him, but the government should not treat first-time offenders like a hardened criminal. Here's the reality about feral swine. They're here. They're here to stay unless we try to eradicate them, and then they're probably still here to stay. The actual damage that can possibly be done by farmers losing their pigs today is relatively ineffective or insufficient. Not really worthy of much consideration considering the existing feral swine problem that we have. Feral swine in Texas are estimated at 6 million animals. Think about that. So no matter where that problem originated from, right now if Farmer Joe has a pig get loose, he is a piss trickle in an ocean, that one pig. Prefer that it didn't happen. There's a lot of things we can do to keep our animals from getting away, and no pig farmer really wants his pig escaping because if he goes into his neighbor's property, yes, it's still the case, bang, too bad for you. But we've had a problem that's much bigger than 6 million feral hogs in the state of Texas alone, a problem much bigger than the expansion of the wild pig population, which, by the way, could be turned into sausage and become a profit center if we did things in an intelligent way. We have another problem far more difficult to solve, the growth and bloating of government. I would trade an additional 6 million pigs in this state, as long as we can still shoot them, for cutting the government in half in a heartbeat. Pigs are easy to fix. You feed the pig until it becomes a hog and then you slaughter it. Natural-born hogs with authority and power, that's your government today. It's a lot harder problem to solve, especially when you can't slaughter the hogs. You have to keep feeding them. In fact, no matter how much you feed them, they can always take just a little bit more. My take by Jack Spearco, the more things change, the more they stay the same or sometimes become more so over time. You tell me today in the comments section what you think is a bigger problem. The growth of the feral pig population in the United States or the growth of the federal government. Interested to hear your comments on episode 1683. With that, I want to remind you real quick you can help support the show By joining the MSB, and guess what's going on right now? A sale Friday, 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 a sale day. Started Friday, Black Friday, and it's running until Sunday, the end of this week. You can get your first year of the Members Support Brigade for only... Thirty dollars. That's right. For only thirty bucks, you can join the MSB and get that first year for thirty bucks. That knocks down the cost of supporting our show to about twelve cents an episode. If you already have an account but it's expired, you can log into your account and use the discount code. And I made it real easy. The discount code is Turkey. Yes, Turkey. If you use the discount tur- code Turkey, either renewing or signing up, get your first year at thirty bucks. And guys, really consider joining the MSB if you haven't done so yet. Number one, it is the way that I'm able to do this show for you every single day of the week. Without this, I could not do the show. I, there's no way I can charge enough in, in sponsorship fees without turning the show into a giant commercial, uh, to support, you know, the ability to provide this show. Um, there's no financial hardships here. We do fairly well with what we do, but just to kind of drive the point home of what it takes to do this show now, my total cost in hosting for two servers with redundancy so that we keep the show active and available and so that as many people as that want to download it can download it, 1200 bucks a month. is what my total cost just in hosting and bandwidth is. Consider joining the MSB. You can help support what we do. I'll leave it at that. I do give a discount for Military, Law, Enforcement, Peace Corps, all that good stuff, but this deal is actually better. 30 bucks for your first year discount code TURKEY. If you want to pay by mail, you can mail the form in. Just click on guess. I'm sorry, not guests, members on the uh, website. If you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see all the ways you can pay. If you want to pay with check or silver, you click on that, you get a form to fill out. Just write turkey on the form and adjust your payment accordingly. Those that pay with silver, uh, we just give you some extra months. I'm not going to fractionalize silver over this thing. With that, let's get into the uh, main topics of today's show, and let's start out with uh, some good news and some bad news. Many of you saw the article and video over the uh, holiday week, uh, the coyote came back. She it was ended up being a female, and an absolutely huge female coyote. I estimated her weight at about sixty pounds. That's big for a male coyote. It really is. And this was a uh, really mangy, sarcomatic mange, uh, heavily infested coyote. And I think it might be part of why she was behaving the way that she was because. To be fair, that is kind of a maddening illness at the stage that this animal had. If you look at the pictures, you can see it. But the coyote came back, um, and Charlie and I took the coyote out. Uh, I can't even really explain why Charlie behaved the way he did, because he behaved as though he had been trained to do this, and I can tell you for a fact, I can take no credit, he had not. He had recently received some training with his shot collar, vibrate only. I haven't had to shock him for a long time. On guns, because we had some people shooting guns at one of the recent events, and he was uh, jumping and trying to bite the gun. So we did some vibrational collar training and showed everybody how that worked. Airsoft guns, so no real danger there. Uh, other than popped in a mouth, the one of those things at close range would have maybe maybe straightened him out a little quicker. But uh, he was barking on Tuesday morning. I knew something was up. I looked out. The ducks were all crowded to one end of their holding area and very far away from the, the duck house. I grabbed my rifle and went out with Charlie. Um, and when I went to open the gate, I almost didn't let him in because I was afraid if he if the animal was there. And I had really didn't expect her to be there. I expected she had maybe jetted by now. I like can see uh, Joe the goose was killed. Joe was laying dead in front of the the goose house duck house. And I uh, figured she's probably gone. Um, but I still kind of felt she might be there. And Charlie just seemed to be in control. He wasn't over there freaking out. He was at the door, kind of barking like come out. So I took a bet on him. And I let him go, and he ran to the far end of the holding area and came back at the, the duck house at an angle, like he cut off the escape. And as soon as I took a step forward after that, the coyote came to come out of the duck house, and Charlie charged it. It looked at me and Charlie, and before I could get a shot at it, it ran back in the duck house. And I jumped in the doorway to cut off its escape. It came at me and had no place to go. Uh, it was cornered, and I let it let nine shots go in about one and a half, two seconds from a uh, Ruger 1022 into the center mass of the thing in the guts with no remorse whatsoever. And uh, then waited a second and gave it one more in the neck. And uh, it died there on the floor and the coyote's dead. The total body count that this animal rang up in two attacks was 24 birds. Two of them geese, two of them drakes, and 20 of them Ducks, in other words, females. That loss financially to us is three to four, maybe $5,000 in total loss from one coyote. But she is dead. The coyote is dead. Long live the ducks. I wanted to talk a little bit about why this animal was possibly behaving the way she was. Most of the time an animal like this is going to attack at night only, not in the middle of the day. This animal is coming in at night, uh, or in the daytime. And will kill an animal or two and, and and get out of dodge, because, especially with a dog. So this second time, Charlie's barking and barking and barking and barking. She just hangs out there. Um, it's called sarcoptic Mange, and if you look at the pictures again from the post, you can see that the animal probably has lost 60 to 70% of her hair. Uh, when this goes a little further, there's this mythical creature in Texas called the Chupacabra, and it's a manged-to-death coyote, basically. And this condition... Untreated in the wild almost always results eventually in death. And this coyote was probably so maddened by this constant itching all over its body from these mites, these scabby mites, that it behaved a little more boldly and a little differently than a typical wild coyote, which, you know, again, you don't usually see them climbing over fences in semi residential areas, uh, attacking and killing multiple animals, and not even taking any of them with them. Um, I think she had decided to camp out in the duck house. She thought she was going to be able to hang out there. She had buried several of them. Um, we had lost a couple the week before when she came into the backyard and uh, was unable to get her. I said I'd have her dead in a week, and I got her on day eight. That's still too high of a loss. One day late and too many ducks late. But when we started cleaning out the, the duck house, we found multiple more ducks uh, buried in straw and she had just basically started killing them and, and burying them inside the duck house. Uh, very unusual behavior. But uh, well, the reason I wanted to talk about this is, one, it's a reality for those of you considering homesteading, farmsteading life. Uh, if you keep animals like ducks, chickens, goats, pigs, etc. long enough, predators will come. You're creating a habitat by c- keeping these animals. And you're going to have to deal with them. And, you know, losing a duck or two uh, I can deal with it. I don't want to, but I can deal with it. When you have this kind of a loss, you have to take radical measures, which means the absolute eradication of the culprit. That's been done. But coyotes don't live alone. They, they, they don't really live in packs. And there's a the whole thing about why killing doesn't work put out by the humane society. It's not an ad hominem attack to say that these people are motivated by their ideology. It is a tr- It is the truth. Coyotes don't have rigid pack structures like wolves. They don't have an alpha male and an alpha female, and, you know, it just doesn't. They do pack hunt occasionally. They cooperate kind of on the fly. Um, They will get in somewhat pack-like structures at times, but in the end, coyotes are mostly solitary animals that only work together when the benefit is immediate and obvious. Uh, they They are, I almost said scum there, but it's not the right word. It's easy to be angry at predators and want them all dead. They are—they're Their in innate behaviors are neither good nor evil. They are what they are, and they come into conflict with mankind. We just had, recently had a listener from Carson post on Facebook that he had a dog they had given to a brother that he always loved seeing when he went to see his brother. And he won't be able to do that anymore because his, his brother's wife was walking the dog recently, and a coyote came out. She was walking the dog on a leash. came out and killed the dog right in front of her. Um, another person commented on the blog, Jose commented, said that untrained dogs in ranch situations, if they don't have other dogs with them to kind of mentor them, coyotes will lure them away from their group, from their pack, and from their animals into a situation where multiple coyotes can kill them. And it's true. They're cunning animals. Native Americans had a reverence for the coyote as the trickster for, for reasons just like that. They also killed a lot of coyotes for the petotypes out there that say, see, the Native Americans understood the coyote's place. Yes, they did. They understood it as a headdress. They understood it as a hanging hide. Right? The coyote is in no danger of extinction. And, and we need to take a strong line with coyotes, especially in residential areas. They're actually worse in residential areas, suburban areas, edge areas, because they're not shot on sight all the time and therefore they lose their inherent fear of human beings and our animals, etc. They're not faced with Anatolian shepherds. They're not faced with great Pyrenees that are trying to crush their skull and kill them. They're faced with Labradors and shepherds that people think can kill the coyote just because their dog is bigger than the coyote. A coyote will tear your dog's throat out if your dog is not prepared to deal with it. You have to understand what a coyote is. A coyote is a wild canine, yes. It's distinctively different from the domestic dog, distinctively different from the wolf. It is its own individual species. And the coyote is a small animal, relatively small, generally 30 to 60 pounds. Its range is much larger than its historical range at this point, due to mankind and our livestock and how we've actually spread the coyote by the coyote following us in our footsteps. The coyote at this small size is born into a litter. It's well cared for for about 12 weeks. And at about six months, it's, 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 it's canine non-gratis with its mother. And, and father's probably long gone by then. But the female, by six months, if those animals haven't gone off and done their own thing or been killed by something, will chase them away. They're they not like a wolf where they take up a structure in a pack or go find another pack. They have to go make their own living. The average lifespan of a coyote that survives its its infanthood in the, in the wild by death is about three years. There's a lot of ones in there that bring down the total average. There's much older animals, but that's it. About three years is the average life expectancy for a coyote in the wild. The ones that are alive and surviving and adults are an animal that that came into the situation where it either survives or it fails. It either kills and becomes successful as a killer, or it starves to death. It is what it is. It's not evil. It's just that's what it is. And what that means for those of you with dogs that are not trained guardian dogs is you need to be as concerned for your dogs to a degree as you are for your animals. Barking shows the force, etc. will generally keep coyotes at bay by larger dogs that are aggressive in nature, but not always. And coyotes have killed dogs like German Shepherds. They have killed dogs like Rottweilers. They've killed dogs like bulldogs that we think of as big, strong, tough dogs. Because our dogs will tend to, if you've ever watched two domestic dogs get in a fight, a lot of times it's not really serious. They grab each other by the neck and they start shaking each other. And when you, it, looks, it looks awful, but when you get them apart and neither is really bleeding or they've got a little scratch here or there, they're not deep. And that's because the neck of a canine, especially on the sides, is very, very thick hide. Very, very tough. And they'll grab and bite and pull, and they developed over time with social structures from the wolf where they bite each other like that to assert dominance without doing real damage to each other. But the windpipe in the throat, down where the, the blood vessels are, is a lot thinner. And a coyote will go for that, a coyote will go for the guts. If there's two coyotes, one will engage with the animal at the neck, and the other will come in and pull the guts out, pull open the belly. They'll bite the legs, they attack the whole body. They're, they're, they, they are a savage animal. Again, that's not a negative statement. That's just a factual statement. And that means that if you're in an area with coyotes, you need to understand the number one way to deal with coyotes is a lethal injection of lead. And trapping is also a viable alternative. I will say this to those of you that are tra- uh, you know new to trapping. I, I've been asked to put together some information on trapping. You have to be careful with trapping coyotes for a variety of reasons. But one is you educate them. The the reality is I'm going to start setting traps here for coyotes, and I'll probably be very, very successful if we still have them coming across our fence because the coyotes around here do not, in general, know what a trap set looks like. They don't know what a trap is. Amateur trappers that are still learning their skill that trap in coyote problem areas educate coyotes to traps to the point where an experienced trapper actually may have a hard time Trapping the same coyote. Once a coyote knows what a dirt set looks like, they're alert for it. They're very smart animals. They're extremely cunning animals. Again, the trickster. So be careful with trapping. A lot of people think, well, I'll get a big live catch trap, you know, and I can relocate the animal. So you're going to give your problem to somebody else if you're successful. And it's almost never successful. Kyle, you put a big box trap out. A coyote looks at that. I ain't going in there. Um, I really don't want to get into coyote trapping today too much more than just to say it's a, something that we're going to have to do as part of a multi-pronged approach to making sure this doesn't happen again. Um, I cannot afford losses like this. I can't afford my ducks to be upset like this. I can't afford my wife to be upset like this. I can't afford to have my, my, my dogs at risk, my cats at risk, my livestock at risk. But um, trapping needs to be something that you know what you're doing before you start doing it in areas And uh, I also have been reading some Scuttlebutt about this whole you know, Humane Society, Project Coyote crap, coexistence, planning with coyotes. We cannot coexist with the coyote um, if the coyote has no fear of us. The coyote will become dangerous and much more dangerous the longer that our attitude is, just let it be. The coyote has to have an innate fear of humans, their dwellings, and the animals around their property. And that only happens when coyotes die. But, that said, I did see a picture of a dog, a domestic dog, in what's called a conibear trap that was supposedly set for coyotes. I wasn't able to vet it yet. It was supposedly set by professional animal controllers around an area in California where coyotes were being eliminated. And a conibear trap, unlike a leg-hold trap, is a killing trap. It's like a giant rat trap. It breaks the neck. It breaks the back. Whether or not that was actually used by professionals, I don't know. But professionals should not be using conibear traps in residential areas. And I, I highly doubt that would be the case. And if you're learning about trapping, and you're considering learning about using coni bears, let me tell you what coni bears are for. Coni bears are for the woods, and not the woods in somebody's backyard. Coni bears are for things like beaver, and mink, and otter. And they're killing traps, and that's what they're designed to do. And that means that they need to be taken away. Because professional animal control people setting leg-hold traps for coyotes should be using rubber jawed probably number three long spring or coil spring traps. You can look those up if you want to know what they are. Those rubber jaws are much more effective at holding the animal than steel and They're actually steel jaws and they're rubber lined. And they actually will not only prevent serious injury to the paw, but actually reduce escapes. And that's, that's more the reason to use them than anything else because even a steel jaw is not going to do that heavy of damage to an animal well trapped, caught up on the wrist. I know it seems like it would. I remember my trapping and, uh, hunter education class. The game warden set a one and a half coil spring trap, set it on the table, took his hand, slammed his hand right into it, let it slam shut on his hand. Held it up. Said, you don't want to do this, but it's not going to kill you and you're not going to die. And you're not going to go to the hospital. Get a fingertip in it. You might lose it, but you get, and that's a properly trapped animal. It's trapped whole paw. If you trap a domestic dog in such a trap, and you are a professional animal control person, you should have a pole where you can control the animal's head with a, with a noose on it. And even a dog that's upset and wants to bite, you can easily be put in that pole. Professional animal control people generally work in teams. One animal controls a dog. The other animal lets the dog free of the trap. And then you either take the jo- dog back to where it belongs if it's got a collar on it or whatever. Or if it's you know, the guy discriminates my dog, you let it go. Or whatever other means of control for that dog you're using. Because it may be a feral dog. But there's no need for trapping of coyotes in residential areas to result in the death of domestic dogs. So if you see any of that, it's FUD. It's bullshit. Just wanted to add that in. And I know this is kind of a long opening thing on coyotes, but I think it's something that, again, if you are considering living even just a little bit, we don't live far. We live 20 minutes from downtown Fort Worth. My wife and I went and saw the Fort Worth Symphony yesterday. We were from here to there in 25 minutes, including waiting for the valet to park our car. So we don't exactly live in the middle of nowhere. The further out you move, the more this can be an issue. And if you're going to bring dogs into the equation and actually rely on those dogs, then you need dogs that are trained to do a job, and the job that a good guardian dog does with a coyote is not mess around with it, not play with it. When it engages, it kills. And the number one way these bigger dogs do this, they get the animal by the head and they crush the skull. Just some thoughts for you. I also want to tell you another little bit of uh, uh, information that you can help out with. I have begun putting together uh, the outline for a new video series. I'd like to take this show back to its roots in a bunch of different ways. and One way I'd like to do that is when I started this show, I did an awful lot of, hey, please help me spread the word. And I've realized we've gotten so advanced on some topics that a lot of times if you send a new person to the show with no frame of reference and they get into a show where we're talking about soil management or something like that, this is not survival, this isn't prepping. And they may not stick around or you may not know where to send them. And I do have a welcome center on the site you can send them to. I'll put a link in today's show notes. It has like eight of our core shows available that help people get the basic understanding. But... I, I want to do this in a way where we can really help people who are at zero, you know, and if, if, you're, if, if a person that's fully prepped is a 100, and most of us never get past a 70, because fully prepped is like you know bunker in the woods and you're ready for everything from the zombie apocalypse to breaking your fingernail at any moment, right? So would we, we, none of us ever get to fully prepared for anything that could ever happen happening, but you know, 70 percent of that is damn solid. And it's where a lot of us would like to at least get to. And 50% is going to get you through 99% of what you could ever expect to happen. But 10% of that would get people through most of the storms, most of life's events. And I want to help people in 60 days get to 10%. And I am putting together an outline right now of 60 videos that will come with an outline um, for me and then now the, the whole thing will be published as well as a PDF people will opt in and every day they'll get an email and they'll have a 4 to 7 minute video with tasks at the end of it and they'll get those and of course it helps promote the show and all but really person personally be able to take this standalone, never listen to a podcast, never give me a penny and I want to kind of start out the series with that, like you need to trust me if somebody recommended this, this course to you and you're taking this course and you need to follow through with these things. You need to develop your own plan, write your own plan. I'm going to tell you certain things I think you might want to buy. I don't care where you buy them from. Yeah, I'll use Amazon links. Why wouldn't I? But but basically, it's like I'm only linking to Amazon to show you, like, this is what I mean. You want to go buy it at at Kmart or Walmart or Joe's, you know, prep and save or whatever. I don't care. You know, I want you to do this because it's the right thing for you and your family. And it's all designed because, like, the first... Task that I'm going to give people on the first video is get four notebooks, a food journal, a spending journal, a planning journal, an organizational journal. Four cheap notebooks you can buy it for a quarter a piece of the dollar, you know, down at the Walmart or whatever. And and you're going to end up by the end of this thing writing your own plan. But kind of to give you uh, an idea of what this is going to be like, video four is going to be building a blackout kit. Block, be okay, not bug out kit right uh, what, what is the purpose? Uh, it, telling them that we're going to get more advanced with energy in the future things like you know using inverters to power refrigerators and all but we're just being really basic right now considering power failure lighting so you can get to your ba- blackout kit and what goes in a blackout kit flashlights batteries, headlights, candles, cheap emergency radio, rechargeable batteries that are always plugged in a charger for those batteries. And the task at the end of that is to assemble what you have, make a list of what you need, and continue your journaling from there. And that'll be just one video. And we can, I can bust through that in four to seven minutes. And I can do all these videos. I'm keeping them down. So I'll tell you where I'm at right now. Here's the, I've got, uh, eight mapped out. I have introduction to modern survivalism, what it is, understanding your six survival needs. Uh, Those are your first two to get a frame of reference. Then, video three, the role of money and preparedness. Video four, the blackout kit. Video five, the threat assessment. Video six, water storage on the cheap. Video seven, first steps in developing a bug-out bag. And that actually takes them through getting a bag, getting their clothing in the bag, getting basic personal sanitation, and enough food for one day. So literally something anybody can do. And then later in the series, we'll build that bag out, A little at a time. So it's like little baby steps. So I want to know what are things that you think, after listening to this show for eight years, that need to be in this series. Suggested titles for videos, ideas, concepts, items that you find in that 60-day build-up to be indispensable because they're affordable, readily available, and we should all have them. Love to hear that in the comment note, comments from you today. And, and get ready because my plan is to get at least 30 of these videos finished, have the other 30 all planned and in a, in a sequence of being released so that I can release this on January second, 2016 and start having people opt in to this course. And uh, so I'm going to be really busy during my downtime this winter getting this done because I think this needs to be done. I don't think there's anything really like this out there that really puts the needs of the student, so to say, ahead of the needs of the instructor, that all of these things are either well-meaning preppers, but it's disjointed, it's all just what we're doing today, or if it's organized and structured, it's it's for sale or it's designed to sell a product. I don't want to sell anything. I just want to give people a 60-day ramp-up to foundational prepping. And I think that the reward of that for the instructor, me, will be a lot of these people will convert into long-term listeners of the show and some portion of those will become supporters. But the big thing is we can broaden our reach and we can get more people imbibed with the concept of creating a culture of preparedness in America. Because that's always been my real goal is to do that, to make sure that we're actually reinstilling these basic values into our people um Next up, let's move on to some feedback. Last time we were on the air for a feedback show, I believe, um, I was uh, talking about theft from the government and uh, basically the fact that today the police steal more property through what they call asset forfeiture than all the burglaries in America today. That you're, you, that there's more money and total property taken by law enforcement at all levels through a- asset forfeiture than there is in total burglaries in the country. And, and I said, as bad as that is, one of the things that, you know, it makes me wonder is, how much money does the government actually legally extort from its citizenry in this country through the concept of taxation? A lot of people threw up, the you know, the federal budgetary number. And, well... Yeah, well, let's talk just taxes, okay? Debt we can leave for another day because that's future burdens of money stolen. Uh, so what's the tax? But not just the federal government, the state, the county, local, etc. A lot of people looked at it, and I think we have a pretty good uh, number for at least a baseline. Well, the number is about uh, $4.26 trillion. And that was the number for 2013. $4.26 trillion in total taxes, county, state, local, etc. And I'm not sure that's all forms of government revenue. That's the best estimate I have. I'm not sure that includes things like hunting license fees and vehicle registrations and things like that. But it looks like it does. It's at the OECD library, and I have a link for those revenue statistics. And you can see the 2014 and, and, and plow through that if you want to. Uh, but let's just say it's $4 trillion a year that our government takes from its people in the form of taxes. I call that legalized theft or legalized extortion. And legalized extortion is actually a better word than theft because they make you give it to them. Right? Theft is they come take it from you. Extortion is the threat of noncompliance is such that out of fear, you comply with the extortionist. And, and that's what taxes are. They're extortion. Um, looking at the revenue, it actually looks higher, 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 for the current year, I'm at usdebtclock.org. Uh, federal tax revenue this year so far 3.2 trillion. State revenue 1.6 trillion, and total local revenues—it's all the towns and townships added up—1.2 trillion. Okay, um, and the state debt—the current, how much do all the states owe right now? 1.1 trillion dollars. All the states combined, oh, 1.1 trillion. Um, local debt? 1.9 trillion. The local governments have less revenue, but more debt. So, to really see how much has been spent up till now, you look at the total debt. Right? And then you'd also add the the or the total uh, spending, and you add the debt to it. So we have 18.7 trillion right now in federal national debt, 1.1 in state debt, and 1.9 in local debt. So the 21 trillion dollars, and this problem is, uh, you know, mathematically calculatable. To, to figure out how much worse it's gonna be. By the end of the fiscal year 2016, the total amount of government debt in the United States to include federal, state, and local is expected to be $22.4 trillion. And and we throw out these numbers like trillion and billion no more anymore and we don't even understand them. A billion is a thousand million. And a trillion is a thousand billion. Let me say that again so you can really take in how much money these people have spent beyond the four point six or four point two trillion dollars a year they take every year. A million, okay, we'll leave that alone. Most people can get their head around a million, right? But it's a a million is a thousand thousand to break it down for you. A hundred thousand is a hundred thousand. It's a tenth of a million. So a thousand thousand to make a million. So think of a thousand dollars and then think of a stack of a thousand dollars and then think of a thousand of those stacks. That makes one million. Okay. Now, you take that thousand thousand stacks and you make a thousand of those and you get a billion. And then you make a thousand... Stacks of those stacks, and you get a trillion. And Then you make 18 of those stacks, and you get how much money our federal government has spent that they don't have. Why do I cover this? To kind of point out for you how ridiculous the situation that we're in is today. It, it's absolutely preposterous. And to point out for you that there, there can be no plan to ever fix this. The only plan can be run this thing until it won't work anymore and then shift gears into a completely new economic model. Now, I've speculated over the years on what that new economic model might be. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter. We're not going to change anything about it. That We need to be building our self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty and our financial viability today with what we have, U.S. dollars. There will be plenty of time between now and whatever this major correction, conversion, change is to take wealth and transfer it because they're going to leave themselves that opportunity. They really are. And if you run out and get rid of all your money today and buy gold, you may get hurt worse than this than you can imagine it. Or, even if it's the right move, how long can this game run? When I was a kid in the 1980s, no one thought this could make it to the 2000. About 1999, 2000, with all the market corrections and failures, nobody thought we would see this economy exist in 2020. I think if you're betting on us not having this basic economy as it is, good, bad, indifferent, but basically functioning this way in 2020, right now, there's a lot of people in Vegas that will relieve you of a lot of your money. So just think about it the next time you hear that anybody should pay more taxes. 4.26 trillion a year paid in taxes. And all we've really gotten for it is another $22, $23 trillion into debt that your kids are supposed to pay, and your kids ain't going to pay it. How about some better news? I want to tell you about a little project I've been doing. I've talked about it a little bit. And uh, I think it's something that a lot of you might want to consider. Michael Jordan on Facebook past- posted a video. I'll see if I can find it where he gives this little class on... Coffee, we call it coffee pot mead, making mead in a coffee pot. I'll be doing some stuff uh, that I'll be putting out over the holidays, definitely, maybe before the holidays, on small batch mead and cider making. But right now I have, let me stand up so I can count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten gallons of various cider and mead going right now. I've got uh, some raspberry mead. I've got some cranberry mead. I've got some pomegranate mead. Really excited about that going. All in one gallon batches. And what I've been doing? Let me see the name of this stuff. Nioara, I guess is what it's called. It's at uh, it's at uh, Albertson's where I've been getting. I just went look for the uh, one gallon bottle of water with a, re- re- a relatively strong plastic instead of the cheap milk jug style uh, with a small uh, lid so that I could stretch a balloon over it, which is how Michael teaches you to do an airlock. I've got some other things running with traditional airlocks as well. And uh, then I dump you know, dump most of that water out into a clean bottle, uh, put enough water in a pan to dissolve two and a half pounds of honey to three pounds of honey, depending on what I'm going to do for a gallon. And I dissolve that honey, and in another pan, if I'm doing a fruit infusion, I put, like, my pomegranate or my raspberries, and I just heat that to steaming to help pasteurize it, kill any wild yeast that may not be good. Don't boil it, or you're going to get what they call, uh, you're going to set the pectin in it, and you're going to get haze, right? So it won't be bad. It just won't ever clear nicely for you. And even if it looks like it's clear, as soon as you chill it, it's going to get a haze in it. So kind of pasteurize that. And, again, I just heat this to, like, a, a steaming hot, don't even measure the temperature, melt everything in and dump that in the bottle and then add enough of the water that's been put in reserve because you you end up creating a lot more volume than you would think with two and a half to three pounds of honey in your fruit and then add water back in and shake that bottle up with the lid on it to get it nice and aerated, let it cool down to about 105 degrees, pitch your yeast, stretch a balloon over it and go on your way. And the reality is you can make a gallon or two or three gallons of mead in less than 30 minutes this way. And uh, it's letting me experiment with a lot of different variety. And I'm kind of going through like this big surge right now of doing two to three gallons at a a shot. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to enter 2016 with this idea of I'm going to make a gallon of mead a week. Just a gallon. And do that every week for a year. That's 52 gallons of mead. Maybe some weeks I'll do a little bit more. Sometimes I'll do my larger batches, five-gallon batches, et cetera. I'm even thinking with some other stuff, I'm thinking about maybe going ahead and getting a 15-gallon, what's called a Demijohn, for my my brewing and venting. But, boy, I like this more than making beer. Beer's a lot more complex, and that's fun. You can experiment with all different hops and stuff like that. But, man, this is fast and easy. And uh I'm also thinking, like, there are different stores that I know that sell really great apple juice in gallon jugs, and those can be my clearing jars. So once these things are ready to come out of plastic and be racked off for a week to clear out, um, those those can be used, and that juice can be used to make cider. On that note, though, um, I no longer can get – I've always recommended Arizona iced tea one-gallon jugs for water storage because they're really, really strong. They're really, really robust. They have a great handle on them. They flat sides. They carry well. They store well. And since they're designed to hold a highly tannic and somewhat acidic product like tea, water is basically infinite storage in them. So you rinse them out really well and and put them up. Why can't I get them anymore? Because I don't drink that crap. My father-in-law drank that stuff, and now that he is in an assisted living facility, he's not drinking it anymore, and I can't get more of those bottles. And with our hard water constantly circulating and reusing our bottles, eventually you get to a point where like that one's got enough calcium build up on it. We're gonna throw it away and start over. So a listener emailed me a picture of these jugs at Costco of two jugs of apple juice for like seven bucks, and they looked very similar to the, the uh, Arizona iced tea jugs. So I thought, well, if that makes a good cider, even if it's just a you know a good drinking everyday cider, then I can use that to make apple cider. And get these bottles as a byproduct. And I won't make anywhere near that much cider that my father likes to drink tea. Cause the guy drinking like five gallons of that stuff a week. Um, but you know, it'll, it'll still help have this inflow of bottles. So we're at Costco and I find this, this apple juice called Treetop. Unfortunately for me, or fortunate that I haven't decided yet on the quality of these bottles, my, uh, Costco does not use the same bottles that this guy's does. Mine are more like a typical juice bottle, but they do seem to be a very hard, strong, clear plastic. And they have a nice handle, and two of them are together, and you cut the handle apart, and you get your two bottles separate. They're one gallon. They seem really designed well for you know storage in large quantities, so they may make a good water bottle. But I bought a couple gallons a few weeks ago. I pitched two different yeasts in them to taste the difference between the yeasts, and they're starting to clear already. So I took a, a, a cider thief, a self-made cider thief, which is a straw, and I took a sampling out of both of them. And one's done with a, a yeast uh, from Safale called a T58 yeast. It's like a continental beer-style yeast that makes a somewhat characteristics of like a ale, but not anywhere near as much as a, a, a proper yeast for that. And uh, just a, uh, a Pasteur Champagne yeast in the other one. They tasted very similar. I need to get them finished before I can really evaluate that. Uh, but the sh- uh Champagne yeast is like a third of the cost, so it's cheap. And here was the thing. Even though this is like, you know, a apple juice that kids would drink that's sweet and all, it has nothing but apples in it. It's There's no added anything. Um, and maybe from concentrate, but then it's just apple and water, which the apple did remove and put back in. And I was afraid it would be too much of a sweet taste. tasted pretty good. I'm not going to say it's like a high-end bourbon barrel-aged cider that's $18 a bottle. But those two yeasts have such good attenuation, which is their ability to to ferment out as much of the sugar as possible, quite dry. Not like this apple wine cooler crap they call cider on the shelves today, this angry orchard, which they should call happy-go-lucky sweet orchard, because they can't make apple cider worth a damn. Um, Pretty damn well-fermented, well-attenuated, and I did nothing with this except yeast and the juices it is. And we'll play with some flavorings and things down the road. But I wanted to give you guys this idea and tell you I will be putting some videos out on how to do all this stuff because it's so simple and so easy. And I think a lot of people want to get into venting and brewing and mead making and you see all this equipment that you need. Well, you don't need much equipment. So I'll find Michael Jordan's video on coffee pot mead, but I also want you to know you don't have to use a coffee pot. And so far, using the balloons, some of them inflate well, some of them not really. Uh, they leak too much, but yet I've not had anything start to go off. All of the meads that I've taken a little tastes out of, nowhere near finished. Michael says most of these take 16 to 90 days. I believe it. There's still a lot of residual sweetness in there. Honey does not ferment, especially when it's pretty much alone at anywhere near the speed that something like apple juice does that has a lot more inherent nutrient to it. That's why we add a lot of these fruits and these meads, or we add an extra nutrient. But give this a shot, you know, and, and maybe take the challenge on. Make a gallon of mead a week or make a gallon every two weeks. Here's the nice thing. Let's say it takes 60 days for your mead to finish. You only have a gallon. It's a lot of time to wait for a gallon. That's why I never did small batches, right? But since they're so quick to make, and I mean, if you're doing one gallon, 15 minutes. Start to finish, cleaned up and done. Really. Other than you got to wait for the stuff to cool down enough. Though it doesn't take long to cool down because you're only heating up enough to melt your honey. Or to pasteurize your fruit, what have you. Um, So... You, you you make your mead and you're, you're done and you're going to wait 60 days, maybe rack it off wait a week, two weeks, three weeks after that for that to really clear and be nice and be bottled and put away and be drinkable. Okay, fine. But once you start getting to that point, every week there's a new gallon coming in. And a full gallon, now you have to pour a little off to make headspace in these bottles But you can, if you, if you make your mead based on a one gallon volume, so you have enough fermentables in there to end up with a gallon of finished mead, then you just add distilled or clean water back to it when you bottle it, and you get about five bottles per gallon. So you're putting up five bottles of mead a week once you start getting into your bottling phase. So once a week then, you take 15 minutes to make mead, and you take about 15 minutes to bottle me. 30 minutes a week, and you're putting up five bottles a week of all these different great meads and ciders. And with the cider, if this, and I'm doing the small cider batches for this reason, I have a kegerator that I haven't used very much since I built it, honestly. And if this, this apple juice makes a decent cider, then I can make five-gallon kegs of this stuff at a time and always have cider on tap with no real work. I need to bring some time back into my life to do a lot of things and that's why I don't do a lot of, you know, two and a half hour brewing sessions anymore. This may be the way forward. So I'll get that, uh, that video of Michael and I'll have other things coming from you, for you from my own activities so you can, uh, participate in this. It'd be interesting to see how many different meads we can come up with and maybe have little mead parties where we get together and everybody brings two or three of their favorite bottles and do tastings together. Um, You know, on that note, stay tuned. We'll see what we can do. All right, real quick before we move on, I did find the post by Michael on the Coffee Pot Meet on Facebook. I thought it was a video of him doing it somewhere else. It's a picture of him doing it somewhere else. But there's the full instructions and recipe for what he made at our plates uh, on the – on that link, which is on Facebook, that you can take a look at. This next article we're covering today comes from Jeff, and this is totally different. We're going into a wide variety for a Monday show. It uh, I so, saw this article today while I was checking for new jobs in my industry and thought of you right off the bat. I don't listen to every episode of the podcast. all of a sudden like, but you're still a firm core of a better life for myself and my family. The basics, just the article below, is how state-sponsored schooling became what it is and why it's continuing to fail now. Honestly, I don't know my history well enough to know if this is indeed the roots or not, but it sounds plausible, and there's a link to an article on LinkedIn. Um, my response to Jeff was, the short response here is, yes, this is an accurate description of how public education came to be in our country. Uh, as for the conclusions, you might think that I would agree, because they are so similar to my own, and it's nice to start hearing other people completely unrelated to what I'm doing in my work say the same things. When you start getting the same conclusions drawn by different people observing the same phenomenon you know you're getting closer to the truth rather than just people going oh yeah I think this guy's right. So here is this article, it's by a guy named, I've never heard of him before, he's an author, speaker, and founding partner at Peppers and Roger Group, uh, part of Teletech, whoever that is, his name's Don Peppers. The end is the end near for public education. It's time to admit that public education operates like a planned economy, a bureaucratic system in which everybody's role is spelled out in advance, and there are few incentives for innovation and productivity. It is no surprise that our school system doesn't improve. It more resembles a communist economy than our own market economy. Albert Shanker. For more than 30 years prior to his death in 1997, Albert Shanker was a pivotal force in the teachers' union, serving as president of both the United Federation of Teachers and the American Federation of Teachers. But as hard as he fought for teachers' rights, he also felt the public education system in the U.S. was sadly inadequate. And with good reason. State-sponsored public education in almost every country in the world is unsatisfactory and inept. A scandal we've tolerated for too long. The origin of comprehensive state-sponsored schooling in the industrial era can be traced to 19th century Prussia. In the early 1800s, Prussian military rulers implemented a national schooling program to ensure a supply of disciplined young soldiers capable of resisting any future Napoleonic-style invasion of their country. Under the guise of teaching, uh, under the guise of teaching young boys how to read and do numbers, Prussian schools grouped students by age rather than by knowledge or ability, sat them in rows of desks facing a teacher rather than arranging them in a discussion circle, and rang a bell regularly so as to discipline their day while they studied a variety of subjects. The British adapted the Prussian model when they needed to create their own cadre of professionals to administer their far-flung empire. And Horace Mann, one of the earliest proponents of public education in America, returned in 1843 after a visit to Prussia full of ideas for implementing the same kind of system in the U.S., Teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic was not the main purpose for these early school systems, however, because the vast majority of adults in Prussia, Britain, and the young, young United States were already literate even before public schooling was instituted. The printing press had unleashed a tidal web of demand tidal wave of demand for literacy, and most people had either learned on their own or were taught by combination of parents and non public for profit schools. Instead, one of the primary objectives of the public school systems in most countries was to raise a disciplined workforce and maintain the social order. In Matt Ridley's ambitious book, The Evolution of Everything, he dedicates a full chapter to the sweeping story of how people educate themselves when left to their own devices. If you look at how schools develop in the wild today outside of government programs, you'll be amazed at the kind of systems that evolve on their own simply because parents want to educate their children and they're willing to spend money to do so, especially when they see a state-sponsored system dysfunctional. And why not? After all, no one thinks a government monopoly is necessary to ensure an adequate supply of fitness centers or hotels or grocery stores. But just like hotels and groceries, non-government schools maintain their quality because they compete with each other. State schools do not. Ridley cites the work of James Tooley, professor of education at Newcastle University, who documented the evolution of low-cost private schools in city slums in remote villages around the world in the cramped and sewage-infested slums of the old city of Hyderabad, India, for instance. There is an association of 500 private schools catering to the poor. The school might have unglazed windows and stained walls, but for the equivalent of $2 a day or less, the children of rickshaw poolers and day laborers get what amounts to a first-rate education. In Ghana, one highly popular teacher has built a school with four branches teaching some 3,400 children a year. Scholarships are provided for those who can't afford even a modest tuition fee of $50 a term. In Somaliland, Thule found a, a city with no water supply or paved roads or street lights. There are twice as many private schools as state schools. In virtually every region all over the world, low-cost private schools outdeliver state schools. They, constant, they consistently have lower costs, and they generate consistently better results than public schools, Thule found simply because parents vote with their feet now add technology to the equation and you have a formula for rapidly evolving non-state controlled education not just in the developed world but in the developing world as well you can read the rest of this if you want to I'll put a link in the show notes but the basic conclusion is that our public education system as we know it has 20 to 30 years maximum before our schools are dead, archaic, empty buildings with trees growing through them that might sound crazy I mean, we'd do something with these public institutions, wouldn't we? We wouldn't just leave them, you know, to their own vices to have trees growing through them. That could never happen. Well, I, I think it's actually possible. And, and I'll tell you why. I have another link for you in the show notes today. I won't go into deeply into this article or anything, but it is, is, it is about the death of malls in America. It's on the Guardian and there's pictures of shopping malls, um, that, Man, I mean, they look like something out of the zombie apocalypse. And this isn't the article I was looking for. If somebody could find the other article I'm looking for that shows uh, photos that are a little bit further along than this one, please get it to me. I'll, I'll post it in a follow up. But uh, I've seen ones where there's literally trees growing, soil growing and developing in the you know the, the atriums of malls that that have only been out of business for less than ten years. It doesn't take long. Uh, I had a breakfast with Toby Hemingway out in California, and I was talking to him about a um, a, a, a thing on the Weather Channel I had just seen, about these buildings in Detroit uh, and, and, and in Chicago that have been abandoned, and these trees growing on the roof, and the roots going down four stories to get to the ground, basically growing on whatever was there accumulated, crumbling the concrete, and these buildings eventually crumbling to the ground, and I think Toby is a believer in eventually the the failure of civilization, and his response was, see, it won't take long. Uh, And I think there may be some truth to that. So I think that's the future of our schools, that we have these huge buildings, these huge complexes, these huge campuses. And some of them are are useful. Some of them are technological schools and things like that, where where children are learning actual skills. Um, and in fact, usually what you have is like five or six high schools and then like a tech center, and the kids go from the high schools for the technical part of their education. Those are the last ones that'll go. The 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 concept that we need to put children in a bus, send them to a building far from their homes, have them sit in rows to be taught basic reading, writing, and math and history today. When there's more computing power in a smartphone than was used to put a man on the moon in 1969, I'm glad to see other people starting to to basically call this out. And I I don't think people understand when I talk about this what I'm really trying to say. So let me clarify it here a bit for you. I think what people think is Jack Spierko is calling for the eradication and elimination of the public education system. While that's sort of true, it's not really my point. My point isn't that's what I'm calling for, because me calling for something like that is what you call in the military above my pay grade. Despite the success of this podcast and how many people listen to it, I don't have the power to to bring down public education. The Koch brothers don't have the power to bring down public education, for God's sakes, with a few charter schools. So I certainly don't. (sighs) What I'm saying is, this is what's happening. This is more of a let's let's call it a a, a future casting than 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 a demand. This is what's going to happen. Parents are starting to look at these systems and see them for what they are: government stupidity run amok in an, in a monopolistic state where the stupidity can be protected and sheltered. Parents are starting to ask, why are my children being told they can't talk about Christmas, but yet they're coming home with homework assignments, reciting verses of the Quran? And, and, and what people say is, well, that's the government trying to turn us all into Muslims. No, it's not. It's the government and government mentality trying to make everything equal and, 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 and singling out one thing as being there's too much of that, so we'll have none of that and equal amounts of everything else. It's stupidity is what it is. It's nonsense, is what it is. Children being sent home because they ate a pop tart into the shape of a gun. Uh, children being sent to psychological evaluation because they were supposedly making a gun sign by twirling a pencil. You can fact check this stuff. I don't put stuff out if it's not fact checked. I really don't. Occasionally, I get burned with something I just assume because of the source is factual. I never try to hide that when it happens. I always come back and retract it. But this stuff is old. We know these things have occurred. We know these things have happened. Kids being suspended for giving a burrito to a classmate who was hungry. So parents are looking at this inept ability to actually teach our children at a cutting-edge level because we're using 1840s, 1850s concepts to teach in 2015. So a failure to educate at the level children are capable of, a one-size-fits-all approach, political correctness run into just... It's not even political correctness anymore. It's stupidity. Teachers that demand to be treated as though they are the equivalent of a doctor... Or a surgeon, for God's sake, with their, their retirement packages. Uh, sob stories about teachers that have to buy, I have to buy Kleenex. No, you don't. Quit your crap. I don't want to hear it. The, the, the school supply scam they run on you every year where you get this list of crap your kid has to have for the first day of school. Half of it never gets used. It's all bullshit. Kids being forced to be in classrooms with other children who pick on them and then being told that that's necessary for social development? How will children learn social normalcy without a school? There's nothing socially normal about a school. There's nothing socially normal about cramming several thousand people into a building and making them deal with each other and and, and coming down on somebody for sharing food. And then considering bullying just, well, that's just kids learning to be kids. It's bullshit. The whole thing's bullshit. It's falling apart, and it's going to crumble to the ground. Because sooner or later, sooner or later, there's enough intelligence left in the American people to wake up from this madness. And more people are seeing it every day. And the technological innovations are slowly chipping away. And this is what people don't understand. Grand institutions... Like the public education system in America that are failing, they rot at the foundation. They rot at the foundation. And the the stuff up in the air looks like it's still okay. It looks like there's – look at these children that went to a science fair and learned how to make a solar-powered building, and oh, my – you know, look at these great teachers that are heroes. You're not a hero because you're a teacher. You're a teacher because you're a teacher. Are there any heroic teachers? There sure are. You know what? What are they, 1%, 2%? That's what makes them heroes. If everybody in a group's a hero, nobody in a group is a hero. Heroes are the best among us no matter what group they're in. It's brainwashing. It's bullshit. So all this stuff is held up with marketing, hogwash, and bullshit. While the foundation rots. And you know what happens to a building in a split second once the foundation fails? It crumbles to the ground. And everybody goes, oh my God, that just happened. It didn't just happen. And in this case, it will be a century and a half of the erosion of a foundation of a flawed system that will eventually reveal the cancer that's occurred within inside of it. And it will happen over time, but it will look like to everyone around it, that it happened in a day, the public education system will fall in onto itself. And when it does, remember, you probably heard it here first. Keeping up a wide variety today, I got an email here from a recent mover to Texas as part of the Walking to Freedom Project, moved away from Chica- Chicago Chicagoland, as he calls it. And uh, he settled in nicely, he wants to start hunting hogs and deer. He says inside of 150 yards, and he wants to buy a lever gun to do this. He says, looking to buy my first lever gun. Was wondering if a 357 Magnum is adequate setup for taking deer and hogs inside of 150 yards, or should I step it up to 44, 45, or even 30-30? All right, so let's just talk about these uh, rounds, all of them. 357 Magnum, 44 Remington Magnum, 45 Long Colt with Heavy Loads, 30-30. All are absolutely adequate for killing deer and hogs. 150 yards. If you have to ask, you're not. If you have to ask, if a 357 Magnum is adequate for killing a hog at 150 yards, then you are not adequate with the 357 Magnum to be trusted to make the shot. And the trajectory of the first three, the 357, the 44, and the 45, all goes very rainbow past 100 yards. Will it do the job? Yeah, probably. Inside 100, no problem. No problem. Proper shot placement. Are any of these ideal for hunting white-tailed deer in Texas and feral hogs in Texas? Not really. Not really. And I know a little bit about Crim's Geographic locations. So he's south of me, a little southwest of me, Austin-ish area. You're getting into pretty open country down there. You're probably going to have a lot of opportunity for shots beyond 150 yards. This is not the East Woods. The best of the group... If you're going to confine your shots to about 100 yards, is the 44 Magnum. It is a dynamite round on hogs and deer. Now we have a couple different 357 Magnum rifles. They're fun. I like them. I enjoy them. And to be, to be fair and honest, there's been quite a few deer and quite a few exotics and quite a few pigs that have all met their end with the 357 Magnum in the hands of goes. We like it. It's fun. It's quiet. It's low low like non existent recoil in a rifle, um dramatically powerful for the, the little cartridge that it is, but it's not ideal. Now so if I was sitting here with Karim having a beer, my question would be why do you want a lever gun? That that it may be answered with I think they're cool and I already have a good bolt action which i'd say let's talk about that it might be because i just think that's the right gun for hunting in this state and it would probably be answered with yeah this is in the northeast woods um, if i was going to advise a a gun for hunting in this state for pigs and deer i would say 260 remington 7mm 08 308 306 to take your pick from that You want to throw a few other nice center fires in that mix? Go ahead. Good quality bolt action rifle. Can't go wrong with the savage platform because it's inexpensive and so damn accurate out of the box. Decent scope, three by nine, typical Simmons or higher end Simmons or Redfield for an entry level. And that is primo. Want to drop to a 243? Go ahead. If you really want to, it'll do the job, but I think you'll be happier 260 and up. That's what I would say. If you want a lever action out of everything you gave me there, and you want to shoot 150 yards to 200 yards, 30-30. The 30-30 has been talked about as though it's some kind of anemic, you know, old cartridge, and now we have deer and and, and feral hogs with armor plating on them, and we need 3,000 magnums or something like that to kill them. And the 3030 has put an awful lot of meat into the freezer for an awful long time. In fact, the 3030 was putting meat in the larder before there were freezers to put the meat into. And death does not come in degrees. It is a fantastic round. For this, for this place though, Texas, where you do take shots at 200, 250, 300 yards if you're capable, it's underpowered for reaching. So if you're in range, it's everything you need more. 170 grains, lethal lead injection, and the, the whole concept with these pigs, right? These pigs can charge you and kill you. And Okay, the average feral pig that we kill in this state runs between 80 and 120 pounds. Okay? A big feral pig is 300 pounds. Are there some 400 pounders running around out there? Sure, but there's not even a lot of 300 pounders. I mean, that's a very big pig. Um, they're not fed corn, they're not fattened the way that they are when you raise a pig in a, in a you know a stand or whatever 250 pounds, big pig doesn't look as big, especially once you kill it it's amazing how you shoot a 250 pound pig, and it looks pretty, looks kind of big standing up you shoot, you walk up to it, doesn't look that big you grab it and try to move, it. you're like wow, that's, that's a pretty sizable animal but, you know, a 30-30 more than adequate to kill that, they do have thick girdles of fat, but more than adequate to penetrate it. Um, these people that think they need elephant guns to shoot pigs or whatever. I don't know if you're hunting a, a pure strain Russian boars in a place where they're you know on a sanctuary and you know they, they they're, they're, they're routinely 400 pounds I'd bring some pretty good gun 306 or what have you but uh, you can shoot I, I know guys that they do all their deer hunting and they shoot a lot of feral hogs 243 100 grain pointed soft points never have a problem. So it's all about the shot placement. So coming back to this, I have no problem with Karim going out and picking up a model 1895 357 Magnum. It's just not what I would recommend. I would even recommend a lever gun as the first hunting rifle for Texas, for an all-around hunting rifle. But if you want one and you're insistent on it, I would look at a 30 30 because you're going to be able to take those 150-yard shots with confidence, See the thing about a thirty thirty. Let's say we say, hey, what I want to do is I want I want a flat shooting rifle out to about two hundred yards, but and I want to use thirty thirty. 30 I'm running from memory here, but we look at the hundred seventy grain bullet, which is I prefer a heavier bullet. Uh, rather than drop 150 in the 30-30 in the for the, the additional energy transfer that you get out of it. If we zero at 100 yards, we should be around 2.5 to 3 inches low at 150, and probably around 8 inches-ish low at 200. 8 inches, pretty significant drop, but if we're shooting out to that range at a deer, uh, and we're shooting high into the vitals at that range instead of shooting over its back, we're still dropping into the vitals, even if we're off by a little bit, unless we're a lot further than we think we are. And we need to be sure of our distances when we're pushing a caliber to its really effective limits. And 200 and a really skilled guy, 250 is like your 30-30 limit, okay? But if we just go ahead and move our zero out, so we zero out 150 yards, what we're going to actually do for most ranges where we have a 100-yard range, we're going we're to zero about two inches high. Uh, at 100, and with the 30 30 probably an inch and a half. And we zero at an inch and a half with the 30 30 high at 100 yards. We're going to hold dead on our target out to 100 yards. I mean, two inches, just hold your fingers two inches apart and think of the center of the vital areas of a deer or a hog. And most people can't shoot a two-inch group. So you might still hit where you aimed, even if you were going to impact high, if you pull a little bit low. All right, but just think of two inches and think of that inside the vitals of a deer, and it's irrelevant. It's a, if you're if you're center, it's irrelevant. You're hitting heart, lung, something, dead deer, dead pig. All right. Now, if we do that, we're only going to be about four inches low at 200 yards. So we we're pretty much going to just hold center of vitals out to 200 yards and no adjustment whatsoever. Cool, huh? Yeah, I'm not going to go through all the ballistics with the 44 and the 357. Let me just say it don't happen that way. It doesn't. And so if you're going to be, and, and then again, let's say you are going to hold your shots to 150 yards, zero at 100 yards, right? And you got a two inch drop at 150 roughly with your 3030. So you're shooting a laser beam for all intents and purposes. You don't have to worry about holdover. And if you're asking questions like these, you don't need to be playing around with holdover. You need some experience first. You certainly don't need to be playing around with your scope and making adjustments to your scope. And it's five clicks this way and four clicks. and then you, That's all TV. Forget about that. Uh, basic hunting. You want to know that your weapon is effective to a range. Know what that range is. Know where to hold. Put the gun up. Pull the trigger. Dead animal. So, if you're insistent on the 30-30 here go or on the, on lever gun here I'd go for a general purpose hunting gun with 3030 if you already have a good center fire rifle 306 6 .260, 7mm08 7 mauser 270 take your pick 280 remington I don't give a damn a good multi purpose center fire you know medium bore deer caliber and then you just want one of these as something to hunt with for fun and for Messing around and bushwhacking and things like that, then then I would say that any of them are okay. I would go with the, and, and here's the thing I own a Marlin lever action in 44 Magnum. Even though we have some single shot 357s and stuff like that, I do not own a lever gun in 357 Magnum. I almost bought one one time and I still kick myself for not because it was a, just a stellar deal on one that was made like in the 60s. Uh, and I should have bought it because it was cheap. I was thinking about getting a, a deer rifle for my son and decided that wasn't the right deer rifle for him. Uh, I should have bought it for myself because it was in fantastic shape for how old it is. Every time I go to a gun show, I'm looking for an old one before the stupid cross bolt safety and all. Old school lever action, you know, Marlin and 357. i I'm always looking for one at the right price. Find one and go and buy it. But I can go out tomorrow morning to a gun store and buy that gun brand new and I don't own one, that should say something about my thoughts about its overall use and practicality. Now, you shoot a 357 handgun well, and you want the two to pair up, go for it. Overall, 3030. 30 That's your general purpose lever action round, and there's some of the new ammunition and things like that. You can do really well. And there's some stuff out there, you know. There's... There is some of the new lever action rounds, but I say stick with the .30-30 because you can get these you know fancy Hordney bullets and stuff uh, in the .30-30 that will improve its long-range trajectory, but you can still get thirty thirty 30 ammo on the shelf of every sporting goods store in America. You'll be able to find something at all times reasonably priced. That's why I say stick with that instead of these things like the three oh eight lever illusion or whatever the hell it is. Summon that up though, just to make my point. The 44 mag, if you zero at 100 yards, is going to give you something like out of a rifle, 15 ish inches of drop at 200. 15 ish inches. That's, that's below the deer's belly and blowing the dirt up. That's what that is. At 150 yards, you're still looking at like six ish inches of drop. So it, it, you can shoot 150 yards with it, but if you're asking, you're probably not the person to be doing it right now in your walk. This question is on water storage, to a degree anyway. This from Kendall in Colorado. It says, Jack, is there a way to sanitize non-food grade containers? I have access to blue 55-gallon drums that have windshield fluid in them. I like used for water storage, but I'm not sure it's safe. If not for water, could I store wheat or rice or other dry goods in them? Thank you, Kendall. Um, here's what I'm going to say. If something's held industrial uh, chemicals and something's not food grade, do not put food in it. Do not put water in it that you're going to drink. You're not going to sanitize it. It's not a sanitizing issue. It's a dechemicaling issue. Now, if, if we're talking about windshield washer fluid and that's all that was in it, then what's in it isn't the most awful things that you would, you would think. Um, the most dangerous thing in there, if you were to drink it, um, is methanol, uh, a poisonous alcohol. And uh, so that's something that we have to be mindful of with uh, the consumption of it. And you may also often find that there is ethylene glycol in there. So those two things are really not things you want in your body. They're also highly evaporative. And of all the different things that probably could be in a um, a barrel that you might use, um, then I, I would probably say it's like the, the least likely of, of things to, to have a lot of stuff left in it that would actually hurt you. But I bet you, if you clean one of these barrels the best that you possibly can, dry it completely out. Put the bung on it, set it out in the sun, leave it for a couple of days in the sun, dry it, take the lid off and sniff it. Your sniffer's gonna tell you there's still some chemical residue in there. We also just really don't know exactly what kind of stuff was in there. What, what when she'll wash your fluid, that's like saying ketchup. Except ketchup's supposed to be edible. Well, there's about 500 million different ways to make ketchup. Was it Heinz? Was it Hunt's? Was it homemade fermented ketchup? Was it made from, uh, nastiness that had a bug count that was, the maggot count was low enough that they let the bottling go through that day? Or was it made in grandma's kitchen from the finest stuff on planet earth? You don't really know. Well, there's, you know, if you just Google windshield washer fluid, you'll see thousands of brands and types and all of them are a little bit different. Again, most of them do have ethylene glycol. Uh, in them, and uh, uh, methanol alcohol, mainly because they help them from freezing up, and they also keep it from becoming contaminated. There's actually concern that people that use just plain old water in their uh, their windshield washer fluid, since it sits there stagnant for so long, can actually end up spreading and getting Legionnaire's disease because uh, listeria will actually develop in that, you know, kind of unsealed water warm area underneath your hood. In fact, there was a study in the UK in 2010 that showed that uh, people that did that had uh, higher rates of Legionnaires uh, than, let's say, professional drivers who would always be using um, uh, windshield washer fluids, a little aside there. So what would I do with these barrels if I had access to them? I absolutely would get them, rinse them out very, very well, rinse them, close them up, set them in the sun, open them, give it a sniff. Now listen, don't go sniffing this crap the day you get it. I'm talking about you've rinsed this thing twice. It's It sat there and soaked full of baking soda water maybe for a week, got dumped out, cleaned out, dried out, closed up, put in the sun, and given a little, not this <laughs> giant, giant sniff, just a... Just to kind of like waft the hand over because you don't really know what was stored in there. Certain things can be really bad for your lungs that could be emanating out of there. But kind of just a a wave. And if there's any off smell, any chemical smell, repeat that process. Try to get them as clean as possible. And I'd be more than happy to set those up as irrigation barrels or something like that. But I'm not going to put food and water in them that I'm going to consume. If I had to. If you said, look, you got to store food and water with this and you got to do it somehow, then I would get barrel liners. I'd get food grade barrel liners, basically giant high end bags, and I would line the barrels with the liners so that there's no connection between the food and you know this has to be impermeable high grade food grade liners. And that's and I wouldn't do that. I would just say if you really want barrels for storing water for your consumption, Buy something made for doing that. Buy, the, spend the extra money. Get food grade containers or what have you. Let's take another one. Um, next question is kind of interesting. It's the one I promised would tie back to um, the little ice age and the kind of peak of it starting uh, in our history segment today. It says, Jack, what if the implications? Uh, what are the implications of the reports of a Monder minimum mini ice age? from 2030 to 2040 are correct, and not a debate on global warming, just wondering if, one, this seems credible, and, two, if people should start to look at wandering further south in the next decade, if they live in the northern U.S., Alaska, would there be negligible difference? Um, and the person doesn't give their name or what have you. The answer to this is any sane person would say it. I, I don't know. I don't know. There is corollary evidence that the maunder minimum of sunspots happening at the same time of the little ice age, that that reduction in solar activity played a part in the reduction of global temperatures, but there's no conclusive evidence that's the sole cause. And and the reality is that our planet and our orbital plane and our angles of, of solar interaction... And our ebb and flow of distances from the sun are far more complex, though completely calculable, than than modern science has led you to believe. Because we want to make it a simple problem, we eat, we 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 burn too much fossil fuel that produces too much CO two, and that's why we've been warmer rather than cooler lately. And there's also global climactic activity at play that changes things. This winter is likely to be. Decidedly warmer for those of you in the northeastern and north central United States than is typical. That doesn't mean it's going to be all nice and sunny. You're going to be sitting out in your backyard in your flip flops and shorts in February though I might be, in spite of what I'm about to tell you, but that it will be warmer than normal, whatever normal may be. Because our view of normal is based on very short durations of time on a planet that's over 4 billion years old. And as we said earlier, a billions a thousand million. And when we base things on a century of temperatures on a planet that's 400,000 million years old, we're not really thinking the right timeline. So we'll put all that aside. So why do I bring all that up then? Because we need to think in timelines here a little bit differently. So if you listen to the history segment today, what Alex Shrug said in it was that this little ice age has actually been going on for a century, but it kind of started its peak, you know, in 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 the late 1600s or in in our case today, 1683 being the episode of the year 1683, and that. What you'll find is that by the time you, you get into early, early United States history, we're still there. We're still there at the, the turn into the 1800s. We're still coming out of this. We, we, we don't even really come completely and totally out of these colder-than-normal temperatures until about 1850. Oh, that's just Jack Spierko talking. No, that's the NASA Earth Observatory notes. Three particularly cold intervals, one beginning about 1650, another about 1870. The last in 1850, each separated by intervals of slight warming. So even the the, the last part... We, of the 1850s was only the beginning of another interval and it was almost 1900 before we really returned to what you would call normal in our limited understanding of beings of what that is. And what that means is that there is a forecast of extreme solar inactivity that seems quite credible and quite predictable um, from 2030 to 2040. That does not mean that that will be the beginning, the end, or the middle of something like the Little Ice Age. It may be colder than normal. It may not be. We don't really know. Now, thinking long horizon here, I actually feel that there is a greater threat to humanity as a whole from the planet cooling down a couple degrees than from it heating up a couple degrees. I'm not saying either one is particularly... Desirable, But I'm saying if you look at what the implications are to to, to humanity, if you drop the global temperature, I'm talking Fahrenheit here because I'm an American and we still use that Fahrenheit stuff here. If we drop the temperature, the average temperature, especially in northern temperate climates, especially when we look at wintertime temperatures by a two degree average, our extremes get much more extreme to the cold. We start having things like three foot of frozen ground. A lot of trees and plants and species that we have come to expect to survive winters don't. We we literally move the USDA zones, right? Like I'm in zone 7A, 7B, or 8A, depending on who you believe, right, Um, here in North Texas. We move them down one. That means Zone 5 becomes Zone 4. Zone 4 becomes Zone 3. Have you looked at what doesn't grow in Zone 3? Have you looked at where Zone 4 is right now? Have you looked at Zone 6? Have you looked at the difference between survivability between 6 and 5? Have you seen how much of the United States, including the most productive parts of it, are Zone 6? So, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm saying that the implications are, you know, not good. Being able to grow citrus a little further north is nowhere near as bad as not being able to grow staple crops a little bit too far north. When we look at the pressure being put on the food production system as it is and all of the other failures going along with it, I mean, people don't really get what this was like in the 1600s. That the, the Thames River in, in, in England would freeze so solid that they, you could walk across it. They started having winter carnivals out on the ice. In the Little Ice Age, for all of this to happen, the average difference in temperature was just 2 to 3 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than today. Um, again, I don't care what your belief is politically or scientifically about anthropomorphic global warming. I think if you actually take a look at what it means for civilization as a whole, if if there were anything to really fear from a disruption to society, the dropping of the temperature back to that level is, is definitely one of them. And any belief that we have, that this little perfect kind of thing we call normal today, is normal for the billions of years that our planet's been here, and is the only way it will change is if we do something to change it, is just, well, frankly, guys, I'm sorry, it's stupid. It's stupid. If you really think that our planet is just going to sit here at this one little window of temperature that just happens to be perfect for not even humanity, but the society that we've built in a 100 years, it's dumb. Because all you have to do is take the most cursory look at climatic data. And again, it has nothing to do with AGW. It has nothing to do with it at all. The most basic look at the climatic data that we have for 10,000 years of human history. And you see, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. So, so I think people should start heading north or south based on any of these predictions. Absolutely not. I think what we have to be doing is we have to be designing resiliency. In any of our systems that we're considering to be sustainable systems, to be regenerative systems, to exist both cooler and warmer. It, it drove me nuts when I was um, in in Montana at Dave Jackie's seminar for the, the, the food forest to hear him keep saying, well, you can start designing this stuff in that's one degree, uh, you know, one, one zone further south because global warming is going to get so warm here. Is, well, really? Really that's your take on on, on, on resiliency. You, if you're in zone four, you need to be designing the core of your system to exist in three or five. And you're gonna find something really interesting when you try to do that. Since you're designing for four, what currently won't survive in five or in four? But wood in five still won't fit in the system. But almost anything you put into your system that will survive four will survive five. Okay? The other way is not true. The other way is not true. You're going to find very few things you would designed into a system that if it, it was one degree further south, the way we think in the northern hemisphere anyway, that won't work because it it'll be a little bit warmer try it the other way and see what happens you'll start seeing what i'm saying here and this is very hard for some people because they're so politically emotionally attached to this concept it's global warming it doesn't matter what we're talking about here is which is the bigger threat and is either possible and if there is no truth whatsoever to global warming at all and no truth whatsoever to climate change at all And and again, I believe that the climate change we've caused is more of a regional thing because of desertification. But even if I'm wrong about that, if there's no truth to either one of these, the fact that the Earth can enter cycles where it's a few degrees warmer or cooler, and that those cycles can be very long-term cycles, and that there might be times during a, a cooling cycle with intermittent warmth where you actually think we're getting warmer, but the overall trend is cooler, or conversely the other way, it's totally possible. And we, we, we can't be so naive as a species is to believe that which is best for us at our current technological and societal evolution is normal. I think that's the bigger lesson here. Don't head north, don't head south, but don't expect that normal is really normal just because some dude in a suit on TV with a degree supposedly in meteorology said that's what normal is. Because this this species is an infant on this planet, and we don't have a clue what normal is on planet Earth. Because there is no normal. There is always fluctuation. And our planet takes some pretty intense elliptical fluctuations just as it it's travels around the sun. And our entire solar system takes trips around our galaxy that have implications for our climate. And we don't even know, we don't even know, what the implications are at a universal level on our climate as our galaxy ebbs and flows and wobbles through our known universe. We don't know anywhere near as much as we claim to. That's the bigger lesson here. How about more on the death of education, and this time at a higher level, uh, college level education, etc. This comes from Tim. Tim says, Hello, I found out about a website that teaches people programming for free, so I went to this site, and it is so effing cool. FreeCodeCamp.com Details. They start you off really simply and then throw you into the bonfire with things you have to look up because they didn't teach the information in that syntax. This forces you either to learn to look things up or ask the community for help, which is the next thing that is so amazing. The community is so damn active it is unreal. As long as you ask in a courteous way, if you don't get someone to begin answering your problem in three minutes, I will eat my hat. The tech community as a whole needs more people, and the 1.5 million jobs that go answered to this date need to be filled. So why not learn to code? Even if you don't want this as a career, the thing is it does spark an innate problem-solving mentality that's so immense. I do believe what you say is true about automation killing jobs, but I don't believe that it isn't creating a shit ton of new jobs in its wake. Really, people need to learn how to talk to computers or at least learn the logic that runs them. This might be a non-issue if there's an MCE or an EMT from some crazies, but, oh, an EMP. okay, I, I think he's got the initials wrong here. I think he means a CME or EMP from some crazies, Uh, but other than that, the wave of the future, we really should accept it. Thanks for reading. If you got this far, Tim, I do not work for free code camp. I'm just a user. And my, my question is, and how many other skill sets like this can be developed this way? How many other uh, places are people already doing this and don't even realize that that's what they're doing? If you look at our forum, the survival podcast forum, the amount of information, education, uh, and, 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 value that's there in of itself just in that one small forum is amazing. Now if you marry to a forum something like this Free Code Camp and you can get connected learn JavaScript, build your portfolio and help nonprofits. So I guess they're, I'm just on their site now and so by creating all these coders the hope is that some of the people that learn here will give back by doing work for free for nonprofits and things like that. I think it's awesome. Uh, um, start learning to code. It's free, and uh, some of the things that you'll learn: HTML5, CSS3, JavaScript, databases, Git, Node. Uh, .js, AngularJS js, Angular JS with JavaScript, and uh, Agile. Right? I mean, these are some of the things that are most in demand today. And there's no reason that something that's not here couldn't be added to something like this. So if we look at mathematics, you've got the Khan Academy. This is another great place where people can learn totally different, more into the, the school-level stuff. Guys, it's, it's just logical. Any of you that are really hanging on to the belief that we continue to need to send children by the millions every day away from their homes to government run buildings, to sit in desks, to listen to bells ring, to sit in straight lines, to do as they're told, to learn at a one size fits all approach, you're just ignoring technology. You're just ignoring technology. The, the education system as a whole is going to evolve at a pace that the existing dinosaurs can't keep up with. Everything from the top universities down to kindergarten classrooms are going to be eviscerated in this in this technological evolution. And when it occurs, people will act like they never believed it wouldn't happen. People will act like, well, of course. People will be like, why did it take so long? They're the same people clinging to it today. People fear change. People just flat out fear change. But... The change comes whether you want it to or not. We fear change. I love to throw those little pop culture things in there from time to time, just to not be too serious about ourselves. And if you don't know where that came from, there'll be a link in today's show notes that says we fear change. And you can look that up and, see where that came from. Most of you are probably somewhere around my age and you know exactly where that came from. Anyway, last question is kind of a serious, complicated one that I can't get too deep into because I could do a whole show on this. Um, but it says, uh, Jack, I'm a lifetime member and founding member of Perma Ethos. Thanks in advance for considering my question, whether or not you include it in the TSP. Uh, when going with a group to purchase land, 100 plus acres, there are so many dynamics. What have you found to be the best practice pattern for this process, uh, i.e. financial spreadsheet of contributions, day one, year one established community, land trust in advance of the real estate transaction, et cetera? Thanks, Ethan. I think this is one that's really complicated. And it really has so many different things going on. If you're doing land development, well, let's say you're going to need 100 acres and you're going to bring 50 people or 50 families on to each act almost like a subdivision and have community property. and all You have to handle it like what it really is, even if you don't legally call it this, if you can find a way around it, which would be beneficial, which is a subdivision whether the people buy their piece outright or have some kind of a lease on it however you manage it you have to manage it i hate to use this word but on some level like a homeowners association but you know a homeowners association doesn't have to be evil it just ends up always inevitably being evil so one thing you can do with something like that to make it not inherently evil is to fundamentally limit limit it uh, even more so than the Constitution limited the federal government, because clearly that wasn't enough. They basically, the, the, the stipulations set down have to have 100% backing to be changed. Something like that. Where no one would actually object to a change because everybody would agree to it, and they would only do agree to it because something that may come later may require it, or something like that. But, so, that's one way. Another way is you uh, put together a group of eight people. None of you can afford a hundred acres. You'd all like a hundred acres, so eight of you go in on this. And then that's a totally different dynamic because now everybody, in theory, on a hundred acre property, could have twelve and a half acres to themselves, or everybody could have two and a half acres, right? And there could be eighty acres of community property. And how does that get handled? Oh my God, this just has the potential for people to hate each other. If we start saying well, we're going to manage this as a community farm and there's going to be a profit, what? will well, there's no profit in two years. All of a sudden, somebody says, I want to leave. I want to take my piece and go home. If nobody's ready to buy them out, now how do we handle my... Ah! See? See? This is how complicated this gets so fast. So here's what I say. The management and or ownership of the property has got to be done by an entity that is independent to itself. That doesn't mean that everybody that's in the transaction is not part of that entity, but the entity has to exist. A limited liability partnership, a limited liability company, a Inc., a C-Corp, and again, whenever somebody says, well, what kind of corporation? Tax attorney and CPA. But Jack, I just wanted your opinion. Tax attorney and CPA. Nothing you say will ever make me ever say anything in response to that inquiry other than you need to talk to at least one tax attorney and one CPA familiar with your situation, your state-level laws, etc. At least one of each. And don't ever ask me because I'm only going to ever answer with the same answer because I'm an honest son of a bitch that won't lie to you and try to pretend that I know shit that I do not know. I, I can't possibly answer that question for you. I can give you all kinds of information about different entities. I can tell you mistakes that I've made, why I might do those differently in the future, but I'm still going to say tax attorney and CPA, and if you keep talking to me after that, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you, tax attorney, CPA. Okay. So you did you, you find that right entity for your situation. And then the entity is charged at minimum with the management of the site. And the oversight of the management. Here's why it may only be the management, not the ownership. Let's say it is you and eight buddies. Uh, you and seven buddies. So eight people. And to make this easy, uh, you're going to buy 160 acres. Everybody's going to get 20. That's just the way it's going to be. We're going to try to make it simple. And everybody has their own little 20-acre spread to do what they want with. And everybody thinks they understand what everybody else is required to do for common management, etc., of the property. Okay. If you have eight people with eight different ideas about what those are, you are going to kill each other inside of two years. People are going to leave. People are going to be mad. People are going to sue each other, blah, blah, blah. If you set up an entity to, to do the management, even if you guys are the entity, then you're going to have to spell it all out in a contract. You have to say, okay, well, there's going to be a common road access point. Just because I get the last place on the – I get the back 20 – which may seem like it's really desirable. Does it mean I'm responsible for more of the road than you are? Are people permitted to go onto each other's property without notice? If so, fine. If not, what type of notice is required? Can you do anything you want with your 20 acres? Now let's make it more complicated. Now it's, it's eight people. All right. It's, it's 160 acres and half is community and half is not. What can be done on the community property? What cannot be done? It's amazing how 80 acres seems like so much land to hunt, okay, until all eight of you want to hunt on the same day, and everybody bought a friend. Can you bring friends? Are there stands? Is it stock hunting? I mean, is it going to be for for management of, of wildlife? Is it going to be for management of livestock? If it's going to be livestock, who's responsible for the livestock? Well, there's going to have to be a livestock manager. Who's that going to be? What is the cost of hiring somebody to do that? What is the potential profit? What is the potential loss? Everybody has to share a piece. See, this is so complicated. This is so complicated. Now, if it's going to be two guys buying a piece of land together, splitting the cost, uh, they're going to have a little hunting cabin on it. They both have access to it, both guys have a room, they share the kitchen. It's pretty soon. and you're gonna use a hunt hunting retreat, ride four wheelers on it and get away. Fine. It's not that I'd still have a contract. I might not go to the, the the point of having an entity for management, but I would spell everything out. I would think of everything that could go wrong and I would get it all in writing, all on paper, because contracts save relationships. Because when, when you and Tom disagree about what was said, you pull out the contract, you go to page four, page four stipulates the following Uh, Dude, Tom, I'm sorry you were right. Uh, Dude, neither one of us were right. This is what it really says. Now, this is what we're supposed to do. We can amend the contract by a unanimous vote of both of us, or we can stick with it the way it is. What do you want to do? I want to do this. I want to do that. Let's agree to it. Okay, fine. We'll write that down. We create an amendment. We attach it. We note the amendment in the contract. We file it. Even if it's never sees a lawyer, never touches a lawyer, it lives in a strong box at the, the cabin... And we pull it out only when we have a question. And I say this about business relationships. I say this about loans. I say that even if it's a simple memorandum of understanding, you spell out the way that it works. And if there's going to be a problem with that, let's get it out right now. Let's figure it out and let's not do this or let's do this. The best way to do a large-scale development, if I ever take a run at it, this is the way that it happens. You and any other true investors that spearhead the project that are going to do all the work to either fund it or raise the funding or whatever it is, sit down and you map out a benevolent dictatorship. You decide the way it's going to be for everybody that gets involved after that point. And you say, if you come here and you buy in or lease in or become a member or whatever it is, this is what you get. Here it is on paper, boom. And they say, I don't like that. Go elsewhere. Bye-bye. But I think you should, bye-bye. Well, I have an idea about, okay, we have a monthly meeting. Here's how it works. Here's what's available for that. Here's how that works. There you go. Well, I don't like that. I want to, bye-bye. Right? Like like the turbocharged uh, airline attendant at the end of the the flight. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. But I wanted to, bye-bye. You're not even allowed to talk anymore. You're not allowed to be here. Go away. Because all you're going to do is be upset and unhappy. So that you create the environment that somebody looks at that and says, you know what, that I can live with. I understand all the rules going in. I have full disclosure. I know all reward potential. I know all risk potential. I want to be part of this the way that it is. I accept the way that it is. I'm willing to sign my John Hancock to this the way that it is. And in some instances... It's necessary for a person to make something like this happen to even if you have people that you feel should have an equal say to put it all down and say there's a few things here we can discuss but overall this is the way it's going to be because most people can't make a freaking decision. Most people can't just say that's the way it's going to be and this is the reality to make something of this size work. There has to be a clear definition of certain things. It has to be done and it's not like there's only one right decision Okay, But I'll tell you what's always the wrong decision. No decision. No decision. The Occupy Wall Street people figured this out real quick when they decided in these big groups, they were going to vote on everything. Every time. Didn't work. Made them largely ineffective. Pretty good at laying around stinking, but not really effective at getting shit done. They're, in, in, in any society, including anarchist societies that are egalitarian and tribal nature type societies, there's still a structure. The, 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 the thing is that the structure is not forced upon you. Here Here is our tribal territory, so to speak. This is what we control, we maintain. This is what's necessary to be part of that. And These are the things that are completely forbidden and these are the things that will get us to start showing you where the, the border of the territory is. Okay? And you can either be part of this Or you can go be part of something else. No one's going to make you stay here. That's the opposite of government. People think that's a government. That's not a government. That is voluntary in, voluntary out. And rights to both, right? So if you did set something up like this, you'd have to say, okay, in the event that you want to leave, here's the procedure for, let's say, selling your interest. And and if I was designing this, and again, I still want to do this someday. I need the right people to do it with. But if, if I'm to do this, then I would say the first thing you must do is offer your interest back to the entity. You have to let us make you an offer. So uh, egalitarian dictator corp, Inc. Right says that your, your current market value of your property is probably about $40,000, let's say. And instead of selling it in the market and having all these weird people come in, the company itself just buys it back and then we'll figure out what to do with it from there. We might hand-select the next person that comes in and sell it to them at cost. We might hold it because we know that you're bailing early and it's going to be worth more in the future. And when it's sold at a profit, the profit goes into the general fund. For Who knows what we'll do? But we're going to make an informed business decision, not an emotional one. So we want at least the opportunity to pay market rate first. And then the second thing might be it has to be offered up to everybody that's already there. If somebody that's already there wants to buy it. They're a known quantity. They should have another crack at it. Before, and then it can be sold. And then we don't just want anybody in something like this. So we can refuse your buyer. Even if they have the money. That sounds like shit to me on some levels. It really does. Unless I really want to be part of something. So it's not your everyday subdivision. We're just buying a house. We don't care who buys it next. Anybody that financially qualifies, qualifies. doesn't work that way. It puts some inherent risk in the situation. And it's not for everybody. But buying a couple hundred acres of land with with four people or 40 people isn't for everybody either. And and I think the only way to make it work is to create create a template that people can see themselves naturally fitting into. And to undersell it. I mean that's something I've learned for parma ethos, undersell shit. Right? Even if you do everything you said you're going to do, people will still think you said more, so undersell the hell out of everything. I mean and I think that's like we may be able to turn a profit in year 5. And if we do a co-op inside of this thing to get around the legal issues, we may be able to return a portion of that to either community development or to individuals as a dividend, sort of so to speak. Okay? Don't know. Don't know if we can, but that's the goal. Not we. Here's our projections of profits by year four. Because you don't know that they're going to be there. Man, there's so much to do in this. Again, I think it could be an interesting uh, whole show. And I think what would be, maybe would be really interesting, this is an interesting idea, I just don't know if anybody would really put the work into it, would be to have people design contracts for how it would work, which is blanks for numbers. Because I might be able to get 200 acres down here, uh for 5000 an acre. You might live in a place where 200 acres is going to be 20000 an acre. So all of these numbers can be based on factors, multiplication factors, division factors, etc. But just like this is what it costs, this is, you know, and you just put the blanks in on percentages and see how many different ways people could come up w- with to run let's say a 200 acre community with 50 households at an acre and a half a piece of land and 150 acres or 70 acres or whatever it comes up to uh, of, of community. And, and cut it up however you want to. And, and then what the cost would be, what the, what the profit would be based on your area, you know, the, the, the monthly revenues, how those could be used for development, I think it would be very interesting. But I don't know. I think we've taken a run at this, and it's far more complicated than most people would think, which is probably why it's not been done as often as you would think it would have been done up to this point. But I do think there is a way to do it. I don't think the big problem is getting over the human interaction, the social design considerations of the community itself. I believe that if you float an idea that's solid in a, in a, in a society with 300-plus million people, finding 50 to 100 that want to be part of it isn't that difficult. I think government and and local codes and ordinances that define people living in the same place as a subdivision and all the shit that goes with that and building restrictions and stuff like that and what it takes to actually be on-grid versus off-grid and commercial versus residential zoning and all that other shit makes this far more difficult than actually solving the social equation. Uh, when I floated it as a dictatorship, that it will be this way, it will be this way. And don't apply if you don't want to do it this way. We had tons of money available to us to do it. 2.6 million was my estimated available funding. That would have taken everybody, but 2.6 million in a 30 day float. Will this program work? Getting it done? Logistically? And I'll say this. If you're going to be the guy, if you feel you have the expertise to do the design and development and oversight of the community, you're going to be the guy. If you're more than two hours from that place, If you can't be there several times a month and physically be on site, don't do it. 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 One more time. Do not do it. You've got to be able to – if you're going to be the guy, you've got to be able to step foot on it, and you've got to be able to instill confidence in the people you're leading. You've got to be able to not just say this is what needs to be done, but actually see to it that it gets done. Or you're trying to hold on to – you know, a, a, a tornado in a teapot, so to speak, and you're on the outside looking in. You can see it, you know it needs to be done to stop it, but you can't do anything about it because unlike the teapot, you can't pick it up and turn it upside down. You have to just sit there and watch it happen, and it's 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 hard. It's a difficult thing. Think deeply before you do it. I've always been opposed to getting too convoluted with groups in the preparedness space, especially with land ownership, and that's why. Now, the way I think it can work the best But it becomes a lot more cost prohibitive this way. As you find a piece of land that can be developed into a subdivision, you develop it into a subdivision, you create certain community guidelines, a community covenant rather than an HOA. That sets down what can and cannot be done right from the beginning in like stone, like commandments. Right? And it's more about that you can do anything you want except these things. So that when somebody tries to do it, nobody can say you can't do it. Right? And then you run it that way, and you sell the lot to so people build their own house. Now, what are the problems with that today? One, the cost of developing the infrastructure. is Huge. Huge. Um, the community property, you know, the way to do this is a series of cul-de-sacs is the, is the most efficient way when we mapped it out. So the houses are actually close to each other, but everybody's got kind of like this acre strip behind them. And then the community property is like a big square in the middle logistically that costs so much less you start understanding why as crazy as suburbs are why they're developed the way they are when you start thinking about how to do this and you end up with this huge bit of community property these trails and it could be really cool but it's expensive then you have to find a township that will let you do it and won't say "Uh, minimum building size on these lots is at least 2100 square feet that's becoming common in crazy rural places now because they're greedy and they want their tax money you know and so this is complicated, but one way or another, you have to have an entity that sees to the management and oversight of the total project. That entity has to be charged with a series of tasks. It has to spelled out procedures. Everybody involved has to read and check off those procedures and say, before I become involved, I'm okay with this. And the biggest problem you'll have is people that think they've read it and haven't read it. Um, most of the time, When people read something and understand it, and they're okay with it, they get involved. And if they're not, they just don't. What happens is people read what they want into something because they want the idea to fit them. Then they sign on, and then they want to change things. And the only way I really see this to work is to be very clear from the beginning and make change the exception rather than the rule. Where we already know what doesn't work, so we're not going to do that. We're not going to have an HOA. We're not going to tell people where to park their car. We're not going to tell somebody you can't park on your own grass. We're not going to tell somebody what color their friggin' house has to be. We're not going to tell them how big their house has to be. We're not going to tell them it can't be a mobile home. We're not going to tell them it, it has to be an in-ground home. We're not going to, you know, and, and then the, the, the upside, the, the, the other side of this is the way to make this a lot easier is go off-grid only. It actually takes away a lot of the restrictions and problems that come with corporations and towns and things like that if you go off-grid. But there's still waste removal, right? We'll recycle. People think things are easier than they are. You've got to have it spelled out. People got to understand it. And the people that sign on to it have to know what they're signing on to. And then when they change their mind, there has to be an exit strategy for them that doesn't disrupt the community. It's the best I can do for you in a closing segment on today's show. Anyway, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Remember, I got a lot I'm asking out of you this episode. Uh, I want your suggestions and comments for videos and segments and items for my video series. want your comments, uh, on the, on the, on the site today, um, with your ideas for different meads. I want to hear about um, your ideas when it comes to the public education system. I want your comments, guys. I, I want to hear from you. Get on the site today, again, episode sixteen eighty three, and, and let me know what you think about today's segments and uh, anything you have to add about using, you know, uh, barrels that have been used for industrial purposes or things like that. Thoughts, dangers, uh, ways to get past some of those dangers, etc. I, I want to hear from this audience at all times. And I want to say something at the end of today's show. Just because you tell me something and I disagree with you, doesn't mean I didn't listen to you. I think that's a problem we have in America today. And we're teaching our youth that, and it's like a disease spreading into the middle-aged. Like I, I think five years ago, people had less of a problem with this than they do even today. Our children are being taught in, in our university systems and our school systems that everybody's opinion's valid. No, not everybody's opinion's valid. And, and, and they're coming home with this mentality and parents and older siblings are actually accepting this nonsense and thinking that unless somebody agrees with you or agrees with the majority, uh, they're wrong. And that everybody should just agree with you to make you feel good. I'm not going to agree with everything you say. It doesn't mean I don't respect you. It doesn't mean I don't appreciate you. It doesn't mean that I didn't hear you. And it doesn't even mean when I disagree with the totality of what you said that maybe I didn't agree with many of the components of it, and those may not change the way I see things in the future. This is how we evolve as a society. This is how we evolve as a community, by listening to everybody. But we also have to accept some people have stupid ideas. Most people don't have stupid ideas. They have ideas that don't have the total information available. seems like a good idea. Most of us have done things in our li- our past that we were convinced were right when we did them. And if we look back on them today with hindsight, that 2020 hindsight, fully informed 10 years later, we go, that was dumb. That was stupid. But it really wasn't. Doing stupid things is like jumping off a building to see if it'll hurt. Well, you already know the answer to that. So that's stupid behavior. Stupid behavior is putting your penis into a beehive to see if they'll sting you. They'll do it. It'll hurt. Don't do that. It's dumb. Okay? Making the best decision you can with the information you have at the time is doing the best that you can. And information over time will change the way you view that same thing. Understand that's where we all are. We're all at different points of that. So we can all share our opinions. We can all disagree. Many of our opinions can be valid. But not all opinions and not all beliefs are valid. Some are dumb. Let's be willing to call stupid what it is. Let's do the best that we can. Let's support and take care of each other. And we can do all of those things at the same time. We do not have to respect the opinions of people that are clearly mentally deranged or flat-out stupid to respect the opinions of most people. We don't have to go to the extreme. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It was July hot across Georgia on my way to Murphy. Beach. I just got my diploma, so I set out in search of me. The honeymoon was over, and Alabama was far away. From being little more than just a southern state, I got a gig down at the bowery. I played for tips and water trains, just a novice in a That seldom what is seen. And where are you going, Tartar? Where's J.C. in the chosen few? I saw the flag. I was July hot and thirty Some years down the line When the boys touched the nation Unaware at the time I got to go to Texas California, New York too A farm boy who is thankful To be standing in his shoes But in the Bowery hangs the memories of dreams that still come true. Every time I see the spotlights, I'm one of the chosen few.